morning, everybody. Welcome, everybody, joining us online. Happy Labor Day weekend. Anybody here experiencing an Arizona summer for the first time? Okay, a few of you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 108 degrees on Labor Day. Here's your hope. It will cool down next month. It will be 100 degrees. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, also, thanks for coming back today. Uh, last Sunday was crazy. Uh, we were in Genesis chapter 34, and it was one of the darkest texts in the entire Bible. Dealt with sexual assault, uh, genocide, some pretty heavy stuff. And the name of God not mentioned once in the entire chapter. Very unusual. Well, I'm very happy to tell you that in Genesis chapter 35, our chapter this morning, the name of God is mentioned 10 times. Additionally, there is a real turning point in our man Jacob's life. If you remember over the last few weeks, he's been partially obedient to God. And a lot of us can relate to that. It's like we'll say, God, yes, I'll, I'll do what you want me to do as long as it's not too uncomfortable. As long as I've still got some safety space around me. Jacob is about to step out of that safety zone and into another realm, another level in his relationship with God. There was a time when he would say, God is not my God. That's like, that's like the God of my dad, but not mine. Talked about how kids raised in Christian homes they have to come to make the decision for themselves. Jacob begins to acknowledge God, kind of partially obedient, and now it's full obedience, and it begins to change the trajectory of his life. I would love to tell you that everything smells like roses from this point forward in his life, but that's not the case, because as we're about to see in the coming chapters is that his kids begin to unwind. Like he's getting his junk together, but with his family, it's a different story. Uh, I, I was thinking about how it's kind of like, and I've used this illustration before, um, it's, it's like when, you, when your trash can's full, it's like overflowing and you're sitting out on the curb in the hot summer sun and everything in there is just getting more and more ripe and it's attracting more and more flies until finally it gets dumped. And the lid shuts, and there's still a few flies buzzing around. Not as many as there were before, but there's still a few flies buzzing around. And that's kind of what's happening in Jacob's life. He now has God at the center of all things, but all things around him are not just perfect. There's still a few flies. Hey, what does it mean to have God at the center of your life? Well, among other things... Perhaps primarily, it means that the voice of God, that is to say God's word, is the most influential thing in your life. To have God in the center of your life means that your relationship with God is the most important relationship you have. Oh, that's such a Christian cliche. And that's much easier said than done. But to have God at the center of your life means that that relationship is the most influential. It's the most important relationship in your life above all others. Um, and when that happens, there is this radical change that takes place in your life. And it begins with a change in the way you think about things, right? 
In fact, we have this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The apostle Paul writes, we demolish, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive in obedience to Jesus Christ. All right, so what does that mean? What, is, what, what are these lofty opinions and these arguments that are raised up against the knowledge of God? I can think of a few off the top of my head. Number one, there are arguments and opinions about how things came into existence. There are argue, arguments and opinions about what is right and wrong, what is moral and immoral. You have the knowledge of God as revealed in the Bible. Then you have the arguments and opinions that are raised up against it. See what's being said? And Paul says we demolish those things. How so? Well, he doesn't say we demolish arguments and opinions with our own arguments and opinions. No, I've said it to you before. Anybody who stands behind the Bible and teaches it, their opinion doesn't count. What matters, what do the scriptures say? And so we demolish these arguments and lofty opinions by exposing them to the word of God, bringing to bear the knowledge of God on it. We take every single thought captive. This is pretty cool. Every single thought. Sometimes you get some messed up thoughts in your head. And so we take them captive and we say, is this a thought that squares with what I know to be true in the Bible. What does Jesus think about this thought? What does Jesus think about this action that I'm about to enter into? We take it captive in obedience to Christ. And this changes everything about you. It changes the nature of the relationships that you have in a really profound way. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why Jesus came as well. Uh, I was uh, talking to a young woman that we baptized a few months ago and her father was in attendance and he has no relationship with God. And afterwards, you know, she's so excited and her father approached her and said, I don't understand you. I don't get it. You know, like, why would you want to do this? The thing that is most important to her is not the thing that is most important to her father. She loves her dad, treats him with the utmost respect. She's super kind to him. but it's a different relationship. And when she enters this space, she enters family. You know, we, we have all these verses in the Bible that are um, they're really, really interesting, the outworking of them. Maybe you've, you've heard it said, hey, as Christians, we need to practice the one another's of Scripture. There's this one another that never gets practiced. Let me share it with you, right? 1 Corinthians 16, 20. The Apostle Paul says, to greet one another with a holy kiss. All the single guys are like, preach. <laughs> Finally, he's saying something that I can apply. Keyword, Holy not sexual, holy kiss. 
So I've been thinking a lot about this, you know, like what would this mean in our context here at, at, at Illuminate? Now, maybe you come from a culture or you visited a culture that maybe they understand this a little bit better. The first time Latin American cultures seem to understand this maybe a little bit better. First time I was in Argentina, nobody, nobody forewarned me. I, I was introducing myself to this, this gentleman and I said, hi, you know, I'm Jason. And I, I put my hand out and he grabs my hand and what does he do? Pulls me in close. And he's like, his lips were coming at me, you know what I mean? <laughs> For real, some of you guys, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And, I, and, I, and I'm like, you, you know, you, and, he, and he plants one on my cheek in purity, in friendship, right? Um, it, I was on staff at a church where a couple of elderly ladies, they were in their 70s. Every time they saw me, they would walk straight up to me and plant one right here. And these two in particular ladies, God love them, they had that classic you know, like, how can I say this? Um, they had that, it was kind of a classic scent, right? And, and, and they both had this, the most red lipstick, man, and they would plant one on me. And I'm kidding you not, in between services, I'd have to go into my office and be like, and scrub it off because that, Jill's, that's not really Jill's color, <laughs> right? And people were looking at me like, the most pure thing ever. It was like I was their grandson. They were so proud of me. You know. I grew up in a church where it was like side hugs only. Because if you hugged a girl in the front, I mean, come on, you know, that's how girls get pregnant. <laughs> that's not cool. I'm too young. I was too young, too young to be a father. You know, so, so like, I got really curious. Like, what does this mean in our context? It's there. Are you going to ignore it? And so what I learned in the first century AD, what it means to greet someone with a pure kiss is to say there is absolutely nothing that divides you and I. There's nothing. Because you see, the thing that unites us is far greater than anything that would divide us. Because the thing that unites us is the cross of Jesus. And we're all exposed as sinners in need of a savior. We are sinners saved by God's grace. Therefore, there's no room for arrogance or pride. All that is left is humility and gratitude. Now, this is way more profound than you think. Because back in the day, it was Jew and Gentile kissing each other in purity. Hard for me to tell you how radical this is in its time. By the way, this is, Paul writes this to a group of believers living in the city of Corinth. Corinth was, it was to Corinthadzai, meant to play the part of a Corinthian and live wickedly. This is a city, no, the, one of the largest, I think it was the, the largest female cult, Dionysus, was in the city. So here, here's what you have in the church. So let me modernize it a little bit. You have a, essentially, a, a, there were temple prostitutes. So you, have a, uh, so you have a sex worker embracing the homeschool mom under the same roof, right? 
I mean, here are these people that are leaving their former lives behind. You have the former criminal embracing the judge. And the world's looking at it going, what is up with that? The world had never experienced any kind of unification like this. So here's the problem in the church. We start lifting up certain things that actually end up dividing. We take secondary things and make them primary things, whether it's your politics, your skin color, your economics, whatever it is. And it's like Jesus comes on the scene and he's like, actually, I didn't die for that. In fact, I, I died to set you free from it. And I'm not saying that those things aren't important. They don't play a role in our lives. But when we take those things and elevate them to the place of ultimate things, then even good things can become idols and we don't even know it and we're divided. And so I've been thinking through this through a lot because we have people in our church family and they really need a family. Like the girl that I mentioned who, you know, was baptized. This is her church family. So at the very least, okay, can we say this? When we walk into this room, we need to begin seeing each other in purity as true brothers and sisters in Christ, as family members. And how would you treat a brother? How would you treat a sister? And it's, it, you know, I'm, I'm just saying a handshake, it doesn't necessarily always communicate that. So at the very least, you come in with the mentality that this is a family member and that we need each other more than we realize. So Jacob's turn toward God, it's gonna, the trajectory of his life is up, but the trajectory of his family is downward as we'll see at the end of this chapter and moving forward. So let's go ahead and um, read about Jacob's turnaround. Chapter 35, verse one. So God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. This is interesting because all throughout the Bible, you see these guys interacting with God and then God says, hey, make a memorial there, set up an altar, pile up some rocks so that when you travel this way through the land again, you're gonna be like, oh, remember when God did this in our lives? Don't forget, it's really important to remember God's faithfulness. That's why there's this kind of language, make an altar. You fled from your brother Esau. You tried to deceive him. He's really mad at you. Now he wants you dead. Remember that? So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods. Okay, let's get rid of the idols that are among you and purify yourselves, change your garments. There's something new in the air now. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. We'll talk about that in a second. Jacob hid them. He buries them underneath the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So God tells Jacob, go back to the place where I first spoke to you. We read about this a um, few chapters ago. There's this ladder that's, it's, that reaches from earth to heaven that, that Jacob gets while he's dreaming. He's on the run from his brother. He has nothing. He has absolutely nothing. He doesn't even have a pillow to lay his head on. God visits him and says, here's the deal. I will be with you. And Jacob essentially responds over the next 30 years, because this is 30 years later, and Jacob's like, that's great. I'm not going to be with you. I'm not going to be with you. That's great. You're going to be with me, but I'm not going to be with you. See, spiritual growth is a process, right? He begins by saying, God is the God of my father, but not mine. And okay, later, okay, maybe I'll learn to trust you just a little bit, a little bit. And then he's, now he's about to step into full obedience. Now he's like, let's get, let's, get, let's get down with it, okay? Let's get rid of all the idols. Let's purify ourselves. 
And Jacob receives this vision as his head is on a rock, God telling him, I will be with you. Jacob saying, we'll see about that. But God, if it's true, if you are who you say you are, he says this back in chapter 28, if God, if you'll be with me, and if you'll keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, because I have none of that right now, I'm in a super low place so that I may come again to my father's house in peace because I left it because my brother was mad at me, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So 30 years later, 30 years after he made that say, after he encounters God personally, he realizes everything that God said was true. I'm going back home. And God has blessed me with so much stuff. I'm going to give you at least a tenth. So he's going back. Now, what you need to realize too, contextually, is that this is a religious pilgrimage because what we're going to read and what follows is essentially Bethel is in the heart of Canaanite territory. And the Canaanites were polytheistic and uh, just idolatry everywhere. And what God is about to do is drive a stake in the heart of all of those false gods while elevating himself as the one true living God. And Jacob proves to be a leader here. His, a couple of his boys have just massacred an entire tribe. They've taken all their stuff, the, the women and the children, against Jacob's knowledge. And they've also stolen all of the people's idols. And so on their way back, Jacob says, here's how it's going to go, boys. God told us to go back to Bethel. I stopped partway in Shechem. Bad stuff happened. Partial obedience led to a lot of heartache and drama. But now I'm all in. We're going to Bethel. And before we do, hand over those idols. Hand over those earrings earrings. Back in the day, earrings were one of the primary ways that you identified with your gods. So in Palestine, not long ago, archaeologists have unearthed a treasure trove, all these funky earrings, some of them in the shape of a moon, animals, weird figures. Those earrings were symbols that represented pagan gods. And dad says, boys, not even an earring, not one little piece that signifies any form of idolatry. We're getting rid of it. In fact, I want you to change your clothes, put on pure garments. To me, this is kind of like Christian baptism, right? Where you are buried along with Jesus in his death, raised to new life in Christ. By the way, we've got baptisms coming up next month, and I like to say it like this. If you haven't, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you haven't been baptized, you have some unfinished business with God. You read through the New Testament, you see people get saved and they're like, let's get baptized. Unfinished business with God is identifying yourself with Christ. So um, this is, uh, this is where, where Jacob is at. Like I said, there's something new in the air for him. They're in the belly of the beast surrounded by the Canaanites. It's going to be very bad for them, quite frankly. Super hostile envi environment. Um, the Canaanites did not tolerate foreigners, but here comes Jacob and this massive entourage. He's going to be noticed, but God said that he would be with him, verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. 
so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. This is God supernaturally protecting them. And Jacob came to lose that as Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, little tragedy hits the family. Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, that's his mom, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So... He called its name Alone Bakuth. Um, this word means sad oak or the oak of weeping. They cried as they buried Deborah. Um, she was a good friend to both Rebecca, um, Jacob's mom, and Jacob himself. But with his death, there's a new generation that's about to arise. And uh, there's a turning of a generational leaf. And there's another couple deaths that we're going to read about. Remember early on I said the book of Genesis is all about beginnings. That's what Genesis actually means. It's the genesis of man. It's the genesis of sin. It's the genesis of, of all these genealogies and generations. And it's also the genesis of the nation of Israel. You're going to see that in a moment. All right? So uh, under heavy fire, God supernaturally protects him. I love this saying. I don't know where I heard it first, but I've said it a number of times throughout this study. I'm going to say it again. The man of God or the woman of God doing the will of God is invincible until God calls him or her home. Catch that. The man of God or the woman of God doing the will of God is invincible until God calls him or her home. This is why you want to be in the center of God's will. You're untouchable. You are untouchable. Jacob had every reason to fear for his life because he's in the midst of the most hostile territory you could imagine. And God's like, remember, I'm with you. And he supernaturally intervenes to protect him. Now it's time for a name change. Uh, formerly Jacob, his name, the name Jacob means deceiver. We talked a lot about that. He's been living up to it. But uh, verse nine, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name is Deceiver. No longer shall you be called Deceiver, but Israel shall be your name. We saw this when he wrestled with God, and now God makes it official. The word Israel means one who struggles with God, and you see this struggling, this wrestling match between the people of God and God throughout uh, their history together. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. And then he re reiterates the promises. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, your grandfather and your father, I'm going to give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, another reminder, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. So this is a throwback to chapters 12, 15, and 17, where God initiates a relationship with the great patriarch Abraham. Again, that's Jacob's grandfather. He says, I'm, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you great land, and I'm going to make you a nation. And not only that, but one is going to come forth from you. You're going to have a descendant, and that descendant is going to be a blessing to every family on earth. This is why the New Testament authors begin by tracing the, the genealogy of Jesus back to Jacob, Isaac, 
and Abraham. Jesus is the fulfillment of that, proce- that, that, uh, that prophecy. Now, the other fulfillment of the prophecy is this nation, this national aspect of it. Now you know that the nation of Israel, the genesis of the nation of Israel starts right here with God's promise to Jacob. Uh, well, um, what's, what's interesting is, is that uh, God says, here's how you know that this is gonna happen. Um, El Shaddai. God, how do we know? Here's how you know. El Shaddai. Let me just tell you who I am. El meaning God and Shaddai meaning powerful. So now Jacob's expanding his understanding with God. It's gonna take, it took some time. It took 30 years, but it's, um, it's never too late to be fully obedient to God. Let me say that again. It's never too late to be fully obedient to God. God's grace was wearing down his stubborn soul. God's grace was wearing down his stubborn soul. And that's how good God is. More tragedy. He's hit with the grief of loss. I told you his family begins to unwind a little bit. So then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have another son. And as her soul was departing for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Onai, but his father called him Ben-Hamin. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. So they're traveling back, going back to the land of Jacob's father along the way. Rachel, his wife, gives birth, but it's complicated. And she knows that she's dying as she's giving birth. And so she names the boy Ben-Onai, which means son of sorrow, sadness. Jacob changes the boy's name to Ben-Hamin, which means son of the right hand. To be at one's right hand was a place of honor and privilege. And Jacob is hit really, really hard with the death of his wife, really hard. And I think God gave me a little glimpse into the nature of this when my own father passed away a few years ago. He was dying of cancer. Shortly before his death, I'm in his bedroom. He's laying on his bed. I'm in a chair in the corner. My dad is sleeping. And super quiet. My mom walks in. And she grabs his hand. And he wakes up. And they look at each other. And without saying a word, they begin to weep. And I thought, you know, that is 60 plus years of life's highs and lows, triumphs and tragedies alongside someone that you deeply care for. And it was like no words could even be used. Instead, it was just raw emotion. I think Jacob felt this way because on his own deathbed a while later, 
he will talk about the grief he experienced over that loss. You know, the Bible says that we Christians, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. It doesn't say Christians don't grieve. We definitely grieve. But our grief is for us. It's for our loss. We don't grieve for those who have hope in Jesus because we know for them it's like, better days, you know, and we'll be with you again. And I wouldn't even want you back here in this mess. We grieve, but for our loss, not theirs. And so this is, this is landing really hard with Jacob. He's got a lot of emotional things going on in his life. And, um, and then his own kids begin to play the role of the prodigals, beginning with the oldest, Reuben. Verse 22, while Israel slash Jacob lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel, Jacob, he heard about it. You're like, what's going on with that, man? That's weird. This is a power play on the part of the oldest son. This is the oldest son saying, uh, by taking my father's concubine, I'm the one in authority now. It's my authority in this family. It's my time. Uh, on his deathbed, Israel will display his anger towards his firstborn son. It's something that he carries unto his death, and it doesn't appear that the two are reconciled. Chapter ends with another death, verse 27. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last. And he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. But notice this. These two warring sons were brought back together once again through the death of their father. I hope a couple of things have been made really clear to you over the last few months as we've studied some of these more challenging chapters in the Bible. Number one, I hope you believe that God is real and that God is with you and that God is for you even though you may not have always been with God. It would take Jacob 30 years, three decades to get to that point where he's like, surrender, <laughs> you asked me to do it and I'm gonna do it. And let me tell you, he is going to need this relationship with God after what his kids put him through. Let me say that again. He's gonna need that relationship with God after his kids put him through what they do. It's a really interesting scene in the life of Jesus. It goes back to what we talked about earlier, this being a family, right? Jesus is teaching, he's teaching a crowd of really difficult subjects like Satan and the Sabbath. And, and at one point somebody says, hey, Jesus, uh, can you take a time out because your mom and your brothers are outside and they want to talk to you. And you know what Jesus does? He doesn't stop. And you're like, that's kind of rude. No, but actually he lays down this principle. He responds by saying, let's ask the question, who is my family? Great discussion. Who is my mom? Who are my brothers? Then he goes on to say, I'll tell you who my family is. It's the people who do the will of God. No matter their ethnicity, no matter their eth 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 
uh, race, their ethnicity, no matter their economics. See, all of that stuff just melts away in the family. Then he, then he goes on and he makes one of his most difficult statements, the hard sayings of Jesus, actually in the context of family. Because then he says this, and a lot of people rejected Jesus because of this, but they don't understand, so follow closely. At one point, Jesus is talking about discipleship. When, you, when Jesus talks about salvation, you hear, hear words like free, whosoever, gift. But when he starts talking discipleship, that's some next level stuff. Those words are sacrifice, cost. And so at one point he says, unless you hate your father and your mother, your brother and sister, you cannot be my disciple. And people are like, I'm out. I'm out. Totally out. It's so, it's, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Here's what he's saying. He's not talking about hate in the sense that you and I understate, like you have to intensely dislike them. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that your love for me ought to be such that your love for them seems like hatred in comparison. That's why I began by saying, when Jesus, when God is at the center of your life, that is the ultimate relationship in your life. All other relationships then take their proper place underneath that. I'm not saying that those relationships aren't important. I have them in, in my life. They're extremely important. But the ultimate relationship in my life is not my wife or my kids. If it was, I'd be pretty messed up. So Jesus, the words actually bring life because when things are in their proper order, then all of those relationships have their intended effect as God created them. So um, I don't know, you know what the spirit of God might be saying to you, but maybe we start here. Simple question. Who or what has the most influential voice in your life? Let me help you with that. Probably you. The person you talk to the most is you. Paul says we take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Second question What is at the center of your life? What is the most important relationship in your life? So we're about to sing this worship song that talks about looking to God. And I love it because in our humanness, we have a tendency to look to everything but God. But ultimately, God is the one that gives us life, sustains our life, and puts everything in their proper perspective so that we can live life with purpose and meaning. It doesn't mean that every fly will disappear in your life. But it does mean that those flies can be managed in a way that they could not be without Christ. Because you're always gonna have them there. And your wife, your husband, your kids, in the end, honestly, they're probably really good people, but they make lousy gods. So Father, as we come before you and we wrestle with another text, there's, it's, it's so rich. Because God, whenever you speak, whenever you act, it's, it's incredibly profound. I pray that you would enlighten our hearts. We would be receptive to whatever it is that you want to communicate to us. We pray for those that maybe are missing the family. Lord, I pray that as a church community, we would step into that space and be the hands, the feet, and sometimes even the tears of Christ 
We see this in his own life where he wept over the death of his close friend. Pray that we would see each other as, as brothers and sisters who you know, desperately need each other in purity. Pray that you'd continue to expand your kingdom here at Illuminate because in the end, we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servants, all for God's glory. And God's people said, amen.